This morning, I want to uh, actually adapt a message that I gave last year at the Truth Matters Conference and bring it to you. I want to talk about what Scripture says about certainty, settled knowledge. How do we know what we know, and how can we be confident that what we believe is really true? Uh, The fact is, one of the most disastrous developments in Western society, really since the end of World War II, is this loss of certainty. People aren't sure of anything, and in fact, people today don't like the idea of certainty. It's not, you know, politically correct nowadays to have strong opinions. And uh, that's ironic because the founding document of the American way of life, the Declaration of Independence, opens, you know, with a short preamble, followed by these famous words, we hold these truths to be self-evident. But, you know, in postmodern America, no truth is considered self-evident. We're not even supposed to be sure what a person's gender is until that person tells you his, her, or their pronouns, preferred pronouns. Or you wait till the kindergarten teacher figures it out and tells you. So we ask, how can I be sure? How can I be sure in a world that's constantly changing. That was a hit song by the Young Rascals back when I was a teenager. That's 1967. By giggling at that, you let us know that you're as old as I am. And the lyrics in the refrain of that uh, that song included this line, I really, really, really want to know. And that was 55 years ago or a little longer. One of the major differences between then and now is that People born in, in say, the 80s or after, they don't really, really, really want to know anything. They want to play video games. And the majority of people today like to react to things with great passion. They love slogans and hashtags and all the symbols of deep conviction, but they don't really believe anything in the classic sense with, you know, firm conviction, settled confidence, genuine faith. You see this in the news cycle almost every day where you you see emotionally distraught people who don't even know the facts about whatever police shooting or court decision has got them so agitated, but they swarm and they demonstrate and they they cite slogans and they protest and, and sometimes even commit acts of violence. And to them, facts are irrelevant. What matters is the socially constructed narrative, not, not the truth, but the narrative. And even if facts later come to light that contradict the original narrative, the facts won't change anybody's opinion. You know, Ben Shapiro always says, facts don't care about your feelings. But the, the credo that most of these flash mobs live by is the exact opposite. My feelings don't care about the facts. And people nowadays don't believe it's possible even to really know what's true, at least not with any kind of settled certainty. They just have this one bedrock belief. It's the foundation of their whole worldview and belief system, namely that anyone who is certain about anything is simply arrogant. Because if you don't believe it's possible to know anything for sure, how can you take anyone's truth claims seriously? especially someone so unenlightened as to believe that God has revealed truth to us in Scripture. And that's where we are today. That's where the wider society is. 
just in the span of my lifetime, there has been a massive loss of interest in the truth. And people in today's culture don't really believe that truth itself is fixed and objective. They have their video games to play where they can live in a virtual world and anything might be true. They have mindless entertainments and fleshly pleasures easily available from multiple sources, and they frankly don't care what's true because at the end of the day, they don't believe truth is knowable anyway. But uncertainty about everything is the very antithesis of biblical faith. Hebrews 11.1, you can turn there. And hold your place here. I'm going to talk for a while, but we'll come back to this text. But listen to Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, these are some of the questions that I want to consider with you this morning from a biblical perspective. Can we really know anything with settled assurance? What can we know for sure, and how do we answer this this popular notion that it's arrogant or improper to say that we believe something with settled conviction, especially things that can't be tested or proved in some kind of laboratory test. How can we convey to the world that it's worth it to believe things like that? And by the way, there are still people today, in fact, I think too many, too many Christians who think that it's per- perfectly reasonable to regard scientific testing as the ultimate standard and the only true and reliable way to judge what's true and what's false. So they think, well, if there's no scientific proof that a thing is true, then at best that's just your opinion. You can't regard it as a fact, they say. That is the modernist belief about knowledge and truth. Modernists believe that science is the ultimate arbiter of what is true and what's certain. Modernism, you know, was in vogue, and uh, it was a topic of fierce debate in the church going all the way back to Spurgeon's time, 150 years ago. The, the modernists said that if you, if you want to distinguish between what's true and what's merely a hypothesis, you have to put your idea to the test and prove it by the scientific method. And modernists believed that there, there is a scientific explanation for everything that really matters, anything that can't be established and confirmed and proved scientifically can't be known for certain, and therefore whatever science can't possibly verify doesn't ultimately matter. Darwinism was a classic modernist effort to do away with the necessity of believing in a creator. And although Darwinism itself, to this day, is nothing more than a hypothesis that cannot be observed or tested by scientific methods Multitudes insist on treating Darwinism as a scientifically established fact because even by their own standard, if it can't be proven, it can't be true, and they desperately need this to be true, that the world started without being created by by an intelligent mind. They want that to be true because, see, if if you can't explain creation without a creator, then you have to make room for spiritual truth. If there is a creator, there is spiritual truth, and modern science is supposed to be completely naturalistic, devoid of any hint that there might be spiritual or supernatural reality. That's the fundamental notion on which post-Enlightenment modernism was based. Now think about it. 
that view, whether consciously or subconsciously, it inevitably does away with moral values, right versus wrong, good versus evil, because you can't really prove any moral standard or spiritual truth by the scientific method, and therefore modernism breeds hostility to all moral and spiritual values. And even if that's not what the original modernists were aiming at, that is what their basic presuppositions demanded. And it's pretty easy to trace what happened, the progression from modernist presuppositions to the rejection of all morality. Darwin and his doctrine of the survival of the fittest set the tone. And Darwinism actually replaced religion for the modernists. If you apply the survival of the fittest to human society, you can see pretty easily how it eliminates all distinctively Christian values. Because if only the strong survive, then human oppression can't ultimately really be considered immoral. If people and people groups are subject to the Darwinian notion of natural selection, then you can ultimately justify practically every human evil from abortion to genocide. And those things have been justified by people who, who, are, who begin with Darwinian roots, with, with modernistic roots. That's exactly what happened, in fact, in the 20th century. It was called social Darwinism, and it, it ushered in the 20th century, which became the bloodiest century in all of human history with holocausts and ethnic cleansing and two world wars and some of the nastiest totalitarian regimes the world has ever seen, people slaughtering masses of other people, numbering in the multiple millions. And honestly, nothing like that had ever occurred in the history of the world. Yes, there had been... There had been ruthless rulers and cruel people and nations like the Assyrians we've talked about who, who thrived on brutality. But on the scale it happened in the 20th century, the world had never seen. And social Darwinism is what spawned these large-scale social experiments, virtually all of them requiring centralized governments and totalitarian control over people. And so it was the job of party bosses and dictators to tell people what they're supposed to believe. This is what's true and certain, they said. And if you believe anything different, you could be killed for it. That is how the survival of the fittest always plays out in real life. And that's why Marxism, communism, fascism, all of these were predictable fruits of the modernist idea that survival is ultimately just a power struggle, and nothing is true except what can be verified by the scientific method. Marxism, communism, fascism all failed, of course, and the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 marked the final collapse of the Soviet Union, Soviet communism, and that was a major turning point. People worldwide watched on live television as the Berlin Wall was torn down, not by any government, but by crowds of people acting in unison, and it instantly became clear to most people, that modernist ideals don't really work in the real world. And also, after more than two centuries of enlightenment, people were finally beginning to realize that scientific opinions are constantly in flux. They change all the time. Science cannot 
possibly offer any kind of settled certainty after all. And therefore, a new way of thinking began to dominate. Starting in the early 90s, it began to take over postmodernism. That's a term that was first used in the early part of the 20th century to describe new styles of art and architecture that rejected the ugliness of modern art. And by the late 1980s, the term postmodern was, was being applied to revolutionary ideas about literary criticism and textual deconstruction. And the postmodernists said this basically, the reader is the one who, who should decide the true meaning of any, any given text. And if you went to college any time after, say, 1985, you probably learned about deconstruction. It is an approach to interpreting movies and music and literature and any kind of text in a subversive way. So you can use deconstruction to find symbolism and meanings in a text that the author never intended. And in the academic realm, this is deemed a profoundly enlightening exercise to deconstruct a work of art or a piece of writing. And over the past 20 years or so, as students who'd been indoctrinated with these ideas have graduated and they've moved out into the larger world, postmodern ideas about truth and meaning have begun to infiltrate pretty much everything we see or hear or read. Basically, postmodernism is a rejection of the modernist truth test. test. The postmodernist believes that if truth cannot really finally be decided, even by science, then there's really no way for us to be sure about anything. And I would say that is the central canon of postmodernism. We're not supposed to believe anything with settled conviction. Basically, everything is supposed to be regarded as a theory or a hypothesis. Everything other than my personal opinion is just someone else's personal opinion. And literally, everything is treated as just a question of individual perspective. You have your truth, I have my truth, and everything you believe is subject to change when your perspective changes. And so raw emotion, rather than the rational mind, raw emotion is what determines how strongly we feel about anything. And I'm sure you've heard some of the discussion over the past few years, especially if you're on Twitter or social media, you see these things, people debating whether 2 plus 2 really equals 4. Seriously. Even people with advanced degrees in mathematics education say they aren't really sure that 2 plus 2 always equals 4. So literally nothing is settled or certain anymore. And postmodern wisdom therefore suggests that simple humility should keep us from ever claiming that we know anything for sure. That's the fundamental idea that is driving human society right now. You can can invent a narrative that will explain what's going on. Even if it's contrary to the facts, people will buy it. The belief is that no one really has the authority to declare that anything is true. We can deconstruct events. You can express your personal opinion with as much passion as you like, But you can only do that if you acknowledge that it's merely an opinion. You can't make any universal truth claims. That's the most politically incorrect thing you can do. So now, think that through with me. If if culture is going to function under a belief system where truth is constantly changing, 
we're going to need an oligarchy of enlightened minds to keep telling us what is the correct way of thinking, what's currently the right way to think. And in Europe, the European Parliament basically fills that role. They tell people what they're supposed to believe at any given moment. Well, last year, I think it was, President Biden created a thing he called the Disinformation Governance Board to tell us what we're supposed to believe. It was nicknamed the Ministry of Truth because that is precisely what George Orwell foresaw in his novel, 1984. And meanwhile, as far as the average postmodernist is concerned, the one remaining cardinal virtue is the humility of confessing that you don't really know anything for sure. And that's why, according to the postmodern way of thinking, dogmatism is inherently arrogant, diversity is always honorable, and propositional truth claims are never to be taken seriously. Now, as Christians, we ought to recognize instantly that that is not humility, that's unbelief. And by the way, this underlying uncertainty about everything is exactly why uh, so many people now think that even gender is fluid. Gender isn't determined by biology anymore, but by how the individual person feels. It's a question of perspective and emotion and feeling rather than objective fact. You can literally win the Olympic gold medalist. You could be the Olympic gold medalist in the men's decathlon And if you feel like a girl, today's constantly shifting notion of social propriety says people are obligated to tell you that that's what you are, a girl. If a guy thinks he's a dog trapped in a human body, society, and and soon I think even the courts and legislature will insist that the rest of us should play along and pretend he's a dog. The line between mental illness and sanity is just steadily being erased. And all of this is a direct result of the belief that we can't know anything for sure. It's bad enough that this trend is changing the world all around us, but the truth is pagans will be pagans, and frankly, those who are so desperate to have a worldview that's devoid of God, so so desperate that they reject the very idea of truth and even spurn common sense, Such people need to live with the consequences of their unbelief. I'm happy for them to hold that view. And although it grieves me to see the world become so hostile to everything that's heavenly, one of the things I am absolutely certain about is that God's truth will eventually triumph, and those who hate the truth and spread lies will ultimately be put to shame. And so I'm content to live in a sinful world and proclaim the truth, even if it's costly. But what is discouraging to me is watching the world's skepticism and postmodernism's glorification of doubt begin to seep into the church. Even in mainstream evangelical circles, we, we see a troubling tendency to coddle and excuse doubts while we denounce certainty because postmodern audiences think, Christian certainty just sounds too arrogant. And much of the evangelical academic world today seems to fear losing their credibility among secularists if they don't tone down their own certainty about the Bible's truth claims. Believing in the Genesis account, for example, is, is deemed naive, and nowadays it's hard 
nearly impossible to find seminaries and other Christian institutions of higher learning that are willing to stand firm on the biblical account of creation. Everything has to be nuanced and made totally ambiguous. And some Christians, I think, are simply confused about all of this and and don't seem to know how to talk about truth and certainty anymore. Recently came across an article that was posted online by an evangelical ministry that is generally sound, doctrinally sound anyway. We, we wouldn't agree necessarily with every jot and tittle of their teaching, but they aren't rabidly charismatic or suspiciously liberal or anything like that. In fact, it's, it's an organization founded by a guy who teaches in mainstream evangelical churches, and he wrote an article, the title of which is, Why I Lack Certainty About Christianity. Now, this is a full-time apologist. My first thought was, he must be trying to use irony or, or just being provocative to get people to read this article, and, and surely he would defend a biblical idea of certainty. So I read the article, and no, he waffles quite a bit on his definition of certainty. He, he gives a scale between absolute disbelief and total certainty, disbelief being zero and certainty being a 10, and he explains that he is pretty certain about some things. He says, quote, there are very few beliefs, if any at all, that I am a 10 on, implying that there are some matters that he considers him close to 100% certainty about. For example, quote, he says, I believe that 1 plus 1 equals 2, so there's that. But On matters of theology or philosophical questions, he says, quote, I don't think I'm a 10 about anything. And so he asks himself, what about the existence of God? Aren't you a 10 there? And then he answers, no, but neither are you. If you think you are, then you've missed my point. Those are his exact words. Now, in my judgment, he's the one who's missed the point. Actually, he's missed several biblical points that are vital to this whole issue. And, and I, let me hasten to say, too, I think it's this writer's actual beliefs are probably better than his analysis of certainty. The main point I think he wants to make is that doubt and faith do sometimes coexist in our minds. That's a point I've made in several sermons over the past five years or so. When Peter walks on water, for example... His faith is assaulted with doubt. And there's the man in Mark, 29, uh, Mark 9, verse 24, who says to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. So doubts do assault our faith, and we're going to come back to that. But here's where I think that guy's article is way off base. First of all, I am more certain about the existence of God than anything I ever learned from a science book. And that guy should be too. Because think about this, we had to learn math, but the knowledge that God exists is innate in our human consciousness. Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul is speaking here about all humanity, and specifically those who claim they don't believe in God, and Paul says, yes, they do believe in God, Romans 1, 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. 
Now listen to what Paul is saying there. He's saying knowledge of God is evident, and he uses this word, within us. There is an innate knowledge of God in every human heart, and God himself put it there. And that knowledge is further confirmed by external evidence. Paul cites it, namely the glory that is manifest in all creation. And he goes on to say that the problem with atheists and agnostics is not that they don't have sufficient knowledge to be certain about God's existence, but rather that, he says, and these are Paul's words, even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, so they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And that's where this guy goes way off track. He is essentially contradicting what the Bible says when he says he has more certainty about a math equation than he has about the existence of God. Second, he's got the idea of certainty backward. Biblically, biblically, the certainty of a truth is not determined by how I feel or what I think of it. The certainty of any truth is established by the reliability and the weight of whatever witness attests to that truth. And in a capital court case, the biblical standard was multiple witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. Now, that's dealing with human testimony, which is fallible in any case, uh, because truthfully, even when two witnesses made the same claim, they could be mistaken or lying. You have that in the case of Naboth in Scripture. So human testimony is always only relatively certain. So is there anything that is absolutely 100% certain? And the answer is, of course. That is precisely the claim the Word of God makes about itself. Scripture is true, infallibly and absolutely so. It is the Word of God who cannot lie. Jesus, praying for his disciples' sanctification in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Jesus again, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. John 10, 35, the Scripture cannot be broken. Luke 16, 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. That's Jesus' own testimony about the certainty of God's Word. So the test of the certainty of anything is not how I feel about it. The test is the reliability of the thing itself. Now, some guy might feel absolutely certain that the moon is made of green cheese or that the earth is flat. That doesn't make the truth claim certain. And if you want to talk about certainty from a biblical perspective, that is the standard. The only certainty that matters anywhere is the reliability of the truth itself. It's not about the depth of my own personal conviction. The question is not, how do you feel about this truth claim? The question is, how reliable is this truth claim? And that is essential to the credo of authentic Christianity. Our bedrock conviction, what we, our confession of faith says and starts with, is that what the Bible says is true and certain. And indeed, the truth of Scripture is the ultimate certainty. 
because it is the very Word of God. That is, that is, again, the confession we make as Christians. Our confidence is rooted in the Word of God, not in external evidences, not in our personal point of view, not in whatever level of intellectual comfort we can derive from comparing the truth claims of Scripture with, with you know, popular philosophy today or the latest scientific opinion. But when it comes to my own personal assurance, the weakness or strength of how I feel has no bearing on the actual certainty of the Bible's truth claims. Whatever doubts I might struggle with from time to time don't make the truth itself any less certain. And in fact, doubts and fears are part of everyone's experience, but those, as Christians, we see those as sins to be mortified. Our doubts are not badges of authenticity to be celebrated and shared. Listen, when, when Christians equivocate or hesitate on matters where the Bible speaks clearly, I'm thinking of things like, is homosexuality a sin? I hear Christian leaders asked that question, and they pretend they have no answer to that. When, when we equivocate or, or waffle on these things that Scripture says clearly, the world is not impressed with our humility. They are, however, given the impression that even Christians don't really believe the Bible should be taken seriously. And let me say this clearly. If you don't believe that the Bible is truly the Word of God, then you're not a Christian at all. Don't pretend you are. If you do believe the Bible is the Word of God, then you are confessing that by definition, what the Bible says is true and reliable and certain. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of Yahweh is perfect. The testimony of Yahweh is sure. Psalm 93, verse 5, your testimonies are very faithful. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. That is all the certainty you need. Now, that was a long introduction. (laughs) I promise to get back to Hebrews 11. I hope you're still open to it. And we're going to spend a little time in this chapter. Hebrews 11, the first verse of this chapter, is all about faith and assurance and convictions. And in fact, those three nouns are all used in the verse. Faith, assurance, conviction. That's how the ESV, the NASB, and the Legacy Standard Bible all translate it. And here's my point in bringing you to this text. If you lack assurance or if you have weak convictions, you need to immerse yourself in the Word of God and trust what it says And by doing that, let your faith thrive and increase. Because Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Those are strong words. In fact, the King James Version says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. One of the modern translations, the Christian Standard Bible, says it like this. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And all of those are legitimate translations of the the Greek words. So this is purposely a very strong statement about faith. True saving faith is not just a vague notion that something might be true. Faith is a supernatural, God-given, life-transforming reality. Faith is what lays hold of Christ. That's what confirms the truth and gives us the unshakable conviction that God's Word is true and conclusive. Verse 3, by faith, 
we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Faith opens our spiritual eyes to see. It renews the soul. It opens our hearts to understand. And of course, all of the chapter, Hebrews 11, is about faith. And the, the, the defining theme that runs from start to finish in this chapter is the idea of seeing what is invisible. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Verse 10, Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He never saw that city during his earthly life. And in fact, Abraham lived in tents as a vagabond his entire life, but he had a promise from God, and he counted it as sure and certain, and he never let go of that hope. We know he struggled with doubts from time to time because he undertook a fleshly scheme to try to fulfill the promise that he would be the father of many nations. And so he had moments of doubt like all of us do, but he never let go of the promise. His faith survived all of those attacks because God is the source of true faith. Moses, likewise, verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the rage of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. There's that theme again of seeing into the realm of what's invisible. I'm sure you're familiar with this chapter. It's a long honor roll of Old Testament characters who lived by faith. But look at verse 13. All of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. And look at the middle of verse 35. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and floggings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in desolate places and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In other words, they all died without seeing the fulfillment of the promises they were trusting because all of those promises are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And not one of those people lived to see his incarnation. We have a great advantage over them because we have more of God's word and we have seen the fulfillment of many of God's promises. And much of the unseen truth of the Old Testament, the, the things that they, those saints trusted in, most of that unseen truth, unfulfilled promises, fully known to us. There is no reason our faith should be as paltry as it is. And if you think you need to see some other evidence or proof that the truth is trustworthy, then you haven't really laid hold of Christ by faith yet. Because faith itself provides all of the assurance and conviction you need. Back to verse 1. And now, let's consider the question, what is the faith that this chapter speaks about? It's not some credulous, blind, ignorant hope. It isn't a wishful guess. It's the conviction of things not seen. It's not the superstitious fancy many people think it is. You know, a lot of people think that if you wish for something hard enough, and if you can convince yourself that that thing is true or you're going to get it, 
then that will make it true. And some, literally, people who call themselves Christians literally teach that you can create your own reality by simply speaking the words out loud. You know, declare your own miracle. Speak the word of faith. Make a positive confession. If the doctor tells you you're sick, you tell yourself that you're healthy. Your words create the reality that you see in your life, and what you see, what you say, is what determines your destiny. That's the charismatic credo, frankly. And that is precisely how word faith charismatics define and describe faith. It's really just a blind, superstitious gullibility. It's based on a twisted interpretation of Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Or Luke 17, 6, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you'd say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, why did Jesus say those things? I'll tell you why. He was working with a biblical definition of faith. Underlying everything Jesus says here is the truth that God is the source of genuine faith. Romans 12, 3, Paul says, For through the grace given to me, I say to each one of you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Notice, a measure of faith is allotted to us by God. Might be just a mustard seed, but Jesus says that's that's enough. And we can't concoct genuine faith out of sheer willpower. If God wants you to move a mountain or a mulberry tree, He will give you the measure of faith necessary. And it might be a very small measure. Jesus says a, a miracle like that would require no greater than a, a mustard seed, and that is that's not because. Faith is, it's not because of anything you do or whatever. It's because the power for the miracle, just like the faith itself, comes from God. Our faith is not the source of the power that performs the miracle. That's not what Jesus was saying. God is the source of that power, and He's also the source of the faith. So, faith is not merely a superstitious belief that I can work my own miracles. Try it, you'll find you can't. Extreme charismatics completely misconstrue what faith is all about. Faith is not a belief in the magic of my own words. It's not a gullible trust in my own willpower. It doesn't mean I can program my own mind as a tool for fulfilling my wishes by telling myself what to say. Faith is simply trust in what the Lord says. That's the easiest definition of faith I know. Trust in what the Lord says. So, unless God himself has told you to command a mountain or a mulberry tree to move, your belief that you can work that miracle to uproot that tree or throw a mountain into the sea, that's not genuine faith at all. It's sheer superstition. And when Hebrews 11.1 talks about assurance and conviction, it's not talking about the brash televangelist-style impulsiveness that makes all kinds of ridiculous claims about things that God has never promised. The faith that's spoken of here is faith in what God has said, and the rest of the chapter makes that clear. It's also not an implicit faith. By that I mean, in other words, true faith is never devoid of knowledge or understanding. It doesn't always have complete understanding, but it's not... It's not blind faith. It's not blind assent 
to something that you have no clue about. You know, the Roman Catholic Church actively encourages people to have this kind of ignorant trust, and they refer to it as implicit faith. So what they're saying is you don't really even need to know what the church teaches. You don't need to have any clue about it. You may not even be aware that Jesus is God incarnate or that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. And even if you never gave a single question, a single moment of thought to the question of why Christ died on the cross, if you trust the authority of the Pope and the infallibility of the church, the Catholic Church says that's faith enough, they say. Implicit faith in what the church teaches, even though you don't have a clue what that is. That isn't faith at all. That's ignorance. And in a similar vein, what this verse has in view is not a mere profession of faith. You know, you might sign a doctrinal statement or or give lip service to a church covenant, but if you don't have any real love for Christ or hatred for the things that dishonor Him, if you lack any interest in or enthusiasm for the truth that you profess to believe in, then your public statement of assent to some facts listed on a sheet of paper, that's not faith, and it doesn't really mean anything. It probably won't last either, because Scripture says God purposely drives away people whose faith is a sham and not real faith. You see Christ actively doing that in John chapter 6. And 1 John 2.19 says this about people who abandoned the faith. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be manifested that they are not all of us. There were tares among the wheat. Who orchestrates the departure of those people? The implication of that verse is that even if they just get bored or angry and leave because they lose interest, God is actually the one who sovereignly ushers them out of the fellowship. He purges the church of people whose faith is merely nominal because they're like Judas among the twelve. They poison the fellowship. They undermine the faith of weak believers. So what is faith? What The faith spoken of here is the same faith that is mentioned at the end of chapter 10. You probably see this more clearly if this chapter division wasn't there. But look at the end of Hebrews 10, verse 35, and here's some context. This whole epistle is an extended plea to people who were half-hearted and vacillating, professing believers, but they were from people mostly from a Jewish background, which is why this is called the epistle to the Hebrews. Some of them were considering leaving Christianity in order to go back to the more comfortable and familiar religion that they grew up in. Judaism, you know, was a much more ornate, more ceremonial, and above all, more socially acceptable version of religion than Christianity. And the strain of persecution, and in many cases, the loss of family relationships, were beginning to wear down the faith of these half-hearted people and, and, and just tear down their stamina. And so this entire epistle is a plea to those people who were wavering to go on to maturity in Christ. And the flow of the argument in the epistle is interrupted several times with a series of increasingly severe warnings. The warning passages in Hebrews, especially 
Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10, these are some of the hardest, most severe passages in the entire New Testament. And the final warning comes here in chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. And it is a very strong condemnation of lukewarm, half-hearted faith. It's an indictment of this sort of bare, meaningless, verbal assent to the truth. You won't find a more sharp-pointed warning about the evils of apostasy anywhere in the New Testament. So listen to it. Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then the writer reminds his readers of their early days in the church, verse 32, the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made, of a, being made into a public spectacle through reproaches and afflictions, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, for you also showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. In other words, all of the hardships associated with taking up your cross and following Christ do, after all, bear some wonderful fruit. And so he tells them, you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession, better and more enduring than any earthly treasure And therefore, he says, do not throw away that confidence of yours, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Now, here he puts together some words from three Old Testament texts to form what he says in the next verse. He's quoting snippets from two places in Isaiah, and and the third one is a verse from Habakkuk, verse 37. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And then the next verse continues quoting from that same place in Habakkuk. It's Habakkuk 2.4. And by the way, this, this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's one of the Apostle Paul's favorite Old Testament texts. It's the verse that was also instrumental in Martin Luther's conversion. And notice, it's a verse about faith. Hebrews 10.38. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So the whole context here, before you even get to chapter 11, is about faith. Specifically, it's about holding firmly to the confidence that goes hand in hand with true faith. And then he goes from that directly into Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Because faith is a supernatural reality, it's a gift of God's grace, it carries a dose of certainty with it. And in fact, you can't have assurance of your salvation at all 
if you are uncertain of whether the facts of the gospel are true, right? By definition. Now, some people teach the converse, then say that full assurance of salvation is the essential defining feature of genuine faith. What they're saying is you, you can't truly be a Christian, you haven't really believed until you have full assurance that you're saved. That isn't what this verse means. And I think there are some pretty grave dangers that are inherent in that idea of faith and assurance. Faith and assurance are not exactly the same thing, and that's not the point of this verse. In fact, if you want a thorough study why that's a bad idea, that's bad teaching, read chapter 10 in John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to the Apostles. Saving faith is not a belief that I personally am saved. It's a wholehearted trust in Christ as Savior. Assurance of your personal salvation will grow or sometimes diminish with time and circumstances, but a degree of assurance is inherent in faith, a degree of assurance. Because really trusting Christ as Savior and believing in the truth of His Word entails some level of self-awareness that, that I myself am a believer and therefore He has saved me. But settled assurance, the full confidence of faith, comes with maturity. Doubt can still coexist with faith. You detect that in the plea of that man in Mark chapter 9. I believe. Help my unbelief. But still, this text, our text, Hebrews 11.1, does mean that faith contains the seeds of our confidence in Christ. You don't have faith at all if you don't have a conviction that the Word of God is true. And so our faith contains the seed of our confidence, and the root of that confidence is God's Word. If you take nothing else away this morning, be sure you get this. The only absolute certainty we can cling to is the Word of God itself. That's where all of our certainty derives from. In other words, the absolute certainty of biblical truth lies not in the fact that I believe it, but in the fact that God said it. Now, belief in the truth of Scripture is so basic that you really can't reject it and make any credible claim to be a Christian at all. It's what I said before. If you don't really believe the Bible is true, don't call yourself a Christian. The entire Christian religion rests on the conviction that God has revealed truth that He wants us to know and affirm, and our certainty about the truth of Scripture is derived from the fact that every word of Scripture is God-breathed truth. And Scripture makes it clear that God Himself expects us to know and be certain of the truth that He has revealed. In Galatians 5, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes to the drifting Galatians and says to them, "'You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you.'" Again, the clear implication is that God has given us authentic, authoritative truth, and He has told us to obey it, and we're guilty if we don't. And doubt doesn't come from Him. All of Scripture underscores this. Unbelief is the mother of all sins. And of course, some things in Scripture are clearer than others. Some things are indeed hard to understand. Second Peter 3.16, Peter writes, in Paul's epistles, there are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. So notice, he acknowledges there are things in Paul's writing that are hard to understand, but he also calls it Scripture. And at the end of the day, this is one of the fundamental tenets of 
true biblical historic Christianity, we believe that God has revealed vital truth in his word, and because God says it, we can have complete faith that is, it is absolutely and necessarily true because God cannot lie. And above all, God himself holds us responsible for believing what he has revealed. It's our bounden duty to receive the scriptures as fully reliable, objectively true, factually accurate, historically trustworthy, inerrant, unchanging, eternal, divinely revealed truth. And ultimately, therefore, Scripture is the touchstone of all truth, and it's the standard by which every other truth claim must be tested. You can work out the epistemological kinks however you like, but if you want to call yourself a Christian, you have to affirm that much. And before postmodernism became the spirit of the age and ushered in the demise of all certainty, Academic types generally believed that certainty is derived from knowledge gained in the classroom library. Scientific types believed certainty is a product of experimentation. Intellectual types thought certainty was gained by rational exactitude exercised by people with a high intelligence quotient. And lots of people thought, and some still do, that then we could just look to majority opinion and and that'll tell us what to be certain about. Christians have always regarded the Word of God as the only reliable standard by which we can judge any other truth claims. So there is a generous canon of sure and certain truth built right into the Christian faith. As believers, we know that, but people who lack faith in Christ can never know that. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. And Paul goes on two verses later to say, we have the mind of Christ. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that we possess exhaustive omniscience. He means we have access to the truth of Christ through the Word of God. That is where he has declared his mind to us. We possess the knowledge of truth, a a truth that is certain and infallible. And it's really as simple as that. Don't succumb to the argument that says you should never try to sound definite or dogmatic just because the unbelieving world rejects the possibility of settled truth with knowledge, knowledge, you know, whether anything is really certain or not. Like Andy Stanley, who says, he says to preachers, quit quoting the scriptures because the people you're trying to convert don't believe that anyway. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard a preacher say. We have the mind of Christ. Listen once more to what John MacArthur says about that text. The argument seems to be that if we cannot know everything perfectly, we can't really know anything with any degree of certainty. That's that's an appealing argument to the postmodern mind, but it is entirely at odds with what Scripture teaches, we have the mind of Christ which again is not to suggest that we have exhaustive knowledge, but we do have infallible knowledge of what Scripture reveals. As the Spirit of God teaches us through the Word of God, we have received through the Spirit of of God, not the Spirit of the world, that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God. That's 1 Corinthians 2.12. The fact that our knowledge grows fuller and deeper 
and we all therefore change our minds about some things as we gain more and more light, that doesn't mean that everything we know is uncertain or outdated or in need of an overhaul every few years. The words of 1 John 2, verses 20 and 21, apply in their truest sense to every genuine believer. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, because no lie is of the truth. Let's pray. Lord, your word is truth. You do not lie, and you do not deny yourself. So we know your word is perfect and infallible and inerrant and incorruptible. And in it, you have given us truth that can never change and never fail. We know that all your promises are yea and amen. So give us courage and conviction to stand for truth in a generation where truth is so bitterly despised and and truth often held up to scorn. May we know the truth and obey the truth and thus live our lives as lights that shine in a dark world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.